toll booth. You know, never mind. Anywhere in Luke. And part of the reason I'm doing this is because our Mississippi All-Stars are here, and the conversation came up again. So our local people didn't give me enough pressure on the rich man and Lazarus, but doubled it up with the Mississippi gang. So I'm going to take it on tonight. It's not done. I want you a couple of warnings. First of all, it's not, it's undistilled. It's not concentrated into the form I finally want to put it in. But I'll give it to you relatively unfiltered, and it'll seem like the long way around. But as my grandfather that I never met sang, sometimes the sweetest home, way home is the longest way round. I think that's what it was, but anyways. A few moments of silent preparation. Professor Sadar is back from his prodigal son stint. He got tired of the eating the stalks of corn that the pigs were eating. He wasted his substance, now he's back. So let's, let's welcome him. And it's a secret, but it's Jim Eichner's birthday, but he's not here, he's hiding out in the hall. If you see him afterwards, grab him up. Nobody gave that away, it was just a secret, but a word from the Lord. All right, let's take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, what an extraordinary privilege to gather in the name of your son, because every time we gather, we are gathering in the name of the one who does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. This is what you do. That's why we pray. We pray because we have a God that does beyond what we could ask or imagine. We pray that you'll make known to us the word of truth, the word of grace, and the word that you have so radically centered in your son. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This will be one of at least two messages. It will be not in the Romans, the epistle series. We'll be calling it the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, part one tonight. And unless I note it otherwise, all the scripture quotations I'm taking, there's going to be a lot of scripture. I'll be taken from one of my favorite, Holman Christian Standard Bibles. And that's the one I usually use. It will not do to appeal to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as your defense for a hell for bad souls. And to do so only reveals that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God for whom nothing is impossible. I'll say that again, to assume that this parable, and that's what it is, a parable, lends credence to your idea or to anyone's idea of a... In, Eternal hell for immortal souls reveals two things about that person. One, they don't know the scriptures. Two, they do not know the power of God for whom nothing is impossible. Three, they do not know the love of God in Christ Jesus from which the entire creation can never be severed. The scriptures of which such a view is ignorant tell from beginning to end of the restoration of all things and the power of God, which is his omnipotence married to love, his all-powerfulness married to his unrestricted, uncontingent, unconditional love. First, what I want to establish in, since this parable is uniquely and only found in Luke, I want to take a look at Luke, and we'll take a look at the horizon of Luke. I'm calling this first part a Luke and horizon. It's kind of forming in my mind as we go that might end up being some form of a small book. Maybe one of you can write it. Uh, the Lucan horizon, or the horizon provided by the Gospel of Luke, another 
key phrase will be the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Which is not just a Lucan, but a Pauline. And throughout the scriptures, it is for the entire Old Testament. First, then, it's important to establish the Lucan horizon. We're starting with a larger circle and moving toward the center in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. First, we start at the Lucan horizon, meaning let's look at Luke. Like Paul, Luke writes in a universally salvific context, a universally saving context. The gospel, according to Luke, is essentially the proclamation of a universal gospel. And therefore, it accents and stresses, as Paul does throughout his epistles, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. In this case, and then in that sense, Luke is truly called and truly is an evangelist a teller of good news. No single section, pericope or paragraph or episode, no paragraph, no discourse, no parable, contests or contradicts the overall tone of the universal salvation proclaimed by Luke. No one parable, no one pericope, no one episode recorded, No discourse, no sayings, no events contradict that tone. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus told by Jesus in no way opposes the purpose of the evangelist, which is in accordance with all the prophets, in accordance with all the prophets. Remember, Acts, the book of Acts is also written by Luke, the Lucan sequel, Luke's sequel. All of the prophets, and we have studied this, I think, almost thoroughly in Acts 3.21. All of the prophets from time immemorial or from the first moment that there were prophets spoke of one thing, apokatastasis pantone, the restoration of all things, a universal restoration. So no discourse, no section, no part, no pericope, no episode, no word, no saying will in any way oppose or negate that which all the prophets of God have spoken. God, in fact, is the one who spoke through the mouth, one mouth, of all the prophets from the beginning. I don't think you can get too much stronger than Acts 3.21, but there's a whole lot more than that. That Acts I call Luke's sequel, part of the Lucan horizon. That's the restoration of all things and all beings. That is universal salvation. It is astonishing to me that Christians oppose this doctrine and call it heresy. It's astonishing to me that they would have the audacity to malign what God has spoken through all the prophets. It's astonishing and astounding to me, which makes it all the more amazing, the mercy that he shows toward us, because I myself resisted that doctrine. So another warning. Don't get arrogant with the knowledge of the truth that you know. Don't get arrogant with the knowledge of the truth that you know. With your friends, associates, or with those with whom you have a friendly discussion about this, this subject matter. The assumption on the part of a number of commentators and interpreters of this parable is that it presents an accurate depiction in the persons of the rich man and Lazarus of the afterlife or of the place of the dead the places of the dead. It is also often assumed that Jesus is representing a binary view of humanity. That is, a separation of humanity into the saved and the damned. 
the eternally saved, the eternally damned, the eternally elect, the eternally non-elect. And he is not doing anything of the kind. These assumptions can only be met with the reply of Jesus to the resurrection-denying Sadducees in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. Again, he said, you are deceived because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. The scriptures, let's take that first, teach that as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's not just a verse, that's a summation of God's overall mystery. The scripture teaches that all humanity together has turned from God, from Yahweh's survey of humanity, all humanity and all of its times in the Adamic ontology, all together turned from God, Romans 3.12. And that all humanity together, that is all flesh in fact, all creation in all of its times, will see, and that means experience, the salvation of God. Luke 3 6 from Isaiah 40 and verse 5. With Luke 3 6 and the ministry of John the Baptizer, Luke signals that from Isaiah 40 to 55, that's one of the most critical sections of Scripture. It's called Deutero Isaiah. That he is going along with the message of Deutero-Isaiah, which is a starkly, stunningly, astonishingly universalistic account of God's saving work in Christ. Including Isaiah 45.23, as I live, God says, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall pledge allegiance to me and sing praises to me. And also 4522, turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. There's a new trend today that we're saved by allegiance and that faithfulness, faith is allegiance. And that's a trend that needs to be defined because I say, yes, we are saved by allegiance. The allegiance of Messiah Jesus to his father. That's what we're saved by. And that's a huge trend coming in Christendom. So I'm already meeting it with a preemptive strike. The scriptures teach, and we're finding this markedly evident in Romans, a unified anthropology. That is not a binary, but a unified view of mankind, anthropology, unified anthropology. It teaches a universal homardiology, as we've been finding out in Romans 3:10 to 18, where it climaxes, all have sinned, all sinned, and all have sinned. A universal homardiology. And a universal cruciocentric, cross-centered, that is, cruciocentric, Christological and Christocentric soteriology. Those are all theological terms, but they refer to what Paul teaches in Romans the power of God and is taught throughout the scriptures the power of God is precisely what they are ignorant of you are ignorant of the power of God this power of God is precisely his saving power to restore all things in Acts 3:21 and to recapitulate all things in Christ in Ephesians 1:10 Reconciling all things in the heavens and the earth by the peace that was made through the blood of his cross. That's cruciocentric, Christological, universal restoration. It's Colossians 1.20. You don't need me to define it. It says universal reconciliation right there. All things plus reconciliation. You want, to, you want to complicate it? You want to qualify it? Then you do so to your own peril and to the expression of your own abysmal arrogance and ignorance. I'm pretending to be an apologeticist here. So I'm an apologist. An apologist means anything but I'm sorry. This power is the omnipotence of God's eternal unrestricted love. 
It is the marriage of omnipotence and love. It is the power which raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He was handed over for the sins of the world and resurrected because of the justification of all humanity, which he won and effected through his death. Romans 4.25, compared with 1 John 2, 1 and 2, and then Romans 5.18. Now, the Lucan horizon, the horizon provided in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts also, but we're centering mainly on the Gospel of Luke, which houses this parable. The Lucan horizon, or the overall context of the Gospel according to Luke, is the proclamation of universal salvation as the consequence of the Messiah who enters his glory through suffering. Are you ignorant, he said, to the slow-minded, slow-witted disciples on the road to Emmaus? Are you unaware of all that the prophets have said? There, he said it again. All that the prophets have said, that Christ must suffer and to enter his glory. The glory into which he enters is not just for himself, It's for all of creation. It's the glory that will fill all the earth in Habakkuk 2.14. This is the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which the God of this age, call him Satan, call him the devil, call him any other number of names, has blinded the minds of unbelieving people who call themselves Christians because they do not believe the gospel. They say they believe the gospel. And they glory in the fact that the gospel has benefited them because they're part of that binary humanity that's saved. You make Christianity that kind of religion, it's the ugliest of religions. I minored in religions at the University of Vermont. It was my minor. My major was English. I know you can't tell that. But... When you turn Christianity into a religion rather than into that which surpasses all religions, the difference being that in Christ, in Christianity, God comes to man in Jesus Christ. Man isn't trying to get to God through any of his own means or works or rituals or ceremonies or goodness or morality or taking care of the planet or any other thing. If we make Christianity into a religion, it's the ugliest of all of them. And it's not intended for that at all. The Lucan horizon is all about all that the prophets have spoken and which all the scriptures testify, Luke 24, 25 through 27 and Luke 24, 44. The answer then for those who assume that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus includes a description of a hopeless hell is to have their minds opened by the spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, the cure for that deception is what Jesus did for his disciples in Luke 24, 45. After expounding on all of the scriptures from Moses, the law, the Psalms, the writings, and all the prophets, he opened their minds that they would understand the scriptures. You do not, I do not, no one does understand the scriptures unless they see in the scriptures the mystery of God, which he intends to summarize all of creation and all of humanity and all of its times in Jesus Christ. And unless we see that vantage point, we don't know the scriptures, nor do we know the power of God. And so the answer is not to beat people into submission to this doctrine, but it is to pray that their minds would be opened by the Spirit of Jesus Christ to understand the Scriptures as the testimony of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and his death, his resurrection, and its universally restorative impact. That is the message of the Scriptures. That is what God accomplishes by his action, by his power. Evidence of this is found in many places in Luke. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of, I'm going to do uncharacteristically a lot of reading of the scriptures 
in Luke. In Luke one thirty-seven, you can note these on your own and read them if you want to. The angel speaking to Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, said this, for nothing will be impossible with God. In Luke one seventy, Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, who gets his tongue back to speak with after nine months of unbelief, prophesies in accordance with, quote, what God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, that he has raised up a strong savior in the house of his servant David. There's the royal motif, Luke 170 to 71. And that in 178 to 79, prophesying, he says, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Then Zechariah refers to those who live in darkness and the shadow of death as the Gentiles. And with reference to guiding our feet into the way of peace, he speaks to his own people or about his own people, Israel, though both of these identifiers can apply to all of mankind. Those who are in darkness, light will shine. In Luke 2, and these are just, like I said, this is just exemplary. A few examples. In Luke 2, Simon in the temple, sees the infant Jesus, takes up the infant in his arms. Pastor Brown spoke brilliantly on this several times. He takes Jesus in his arms, and he exclaims with the Holy Spirit upon him, and he says this, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. That's Jesus. Again, the Lucan context is universalistic early on. Expressed in Luke 137, as I've said, with nothing will be impossible for God, which is also a quote from Genesis eighteen fourteen, which God speaks to Abraham, as he also speaks to Abraham and says, in your seed, which is Christ, all the nations will be blessed. This same truth is brought to bear on the salvation of a rich man. The context in which this is used, again, that nothing will be impossible with God, is with regard to the salvation of an arrogant rich man. Rich man. That's another theme running throughout Luke. The rich man. The rich man. For example, in Matthew 19.26... Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And his disciples said, well, then who can be saved then? And Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible, including what? The salvation of the rich man. So, the same truth then, nothing will be impossible for God, is brought to bear on the salvation of a rich man which for man is impossible, but with God nothing will be impossible. It's impossible for a poor man to enter into the kingdom of God, for a man or a woman or a child or anybody to enter into the kingdom of God, but what's impossible with men is possible with God. That's why we pray. We don't pray stuff that men can do. We pray to God who does stuff that men can't do. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. So then... One of the most unambiguous statements, clear, starkly clear, of a pan-human salvation, that means a total human salvation, is made by John the Baptizer in 3.6. Please look there, and I'm going to quote one portion of it, and it comes from Isaiah 40 and verse 5, which has three clauses to it, and John omits the A clause and the C clause to accentuate the B clause. 
And he quotes only this, and he says, And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, oddly enough, where the Spirit was leading, and I can tell he leads through, when you get about 28 different little confirmations and signs and directions, you know you're supposed, I know I was supposed to teach this tonight. Because I was reading, I think it was yesterday, Joel Green, his name is. He had an essay entitled Conversion in Luke slash Acts in a book called The Unrelenting God. And he, I noticed, and I didn't want to read the footnotes because I'm trying to blaze through every book I can read, but I did read that my eye just caught this footnote, and he said in this about Luke 3.6, he says, it reads, this is what his note said, compared to the present version of the LXX or the Septuagint, Luke's citation appears without Isaiah 45, 40 and verse 5a and without Isaiah 40 and verse 5c. Those two clauses go like this. Then the glory of the Lord shall appear and then because the Lord has spoken. He omits those two and the New English translation of the Septuagint has it that way. Presumably to highlight all the more, Joel Green says, Presumably to highlight all the more the climactic phrase in Isaiah 45b. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke hits the ground running. He's had a high altitude, low opening jump from the highest parts of heaven. And he's hit the ground and he starts running right off the bat by saying, let's get this straight. All flesh altogether in the Hebrew Part of that, the Hebrew translation of Isaiah 40 and verse 5, it says, all flesh together will see the salvation of the Lord. And the only way you can get all flesh together is by resurrection. I love that. Luke was good friends with Paul. And he knew that this same truth was strongly stressed by the apostle Paul. One thing that the movie on the Apostle Paul recently that came out, I thought it was a good portrayal. It was an unusual story. I wasn't familiar with the story, but I thought Paul was well portrayed. But the one emphasis is the friendship of Luke with Paul in his last days. But Luke was friends with Paul for a long time, and that's why he uses the first person plural from Acts 16 through the rest of Acts Because he says, we were together. We did this. We did that. You think Luke might have known what Paul was teaching. Luke was good friends with Paul, and he knew that this same truth was strongly stressed by the apostle. In fact, in one of the most emphatic, expansive, eschatological passages where Paul reaches out further than anywhere else in all the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where the accent clearly falls on the phrase, in Christ all shall be made alive. In fact, Luke may be expressing through the parable of the rich man and Lazarus the same truth that Paul revealed about Israel being saved only after the nations will have come in to God's kingdom. Romans eleven twenty five to 27. Now, tomorrow night, I hope to get right into the, the meat of what a parable is and what, why Jesus spoke this parable and why he spoke it in the way that he spoke it. Because what he was doing was, just to give you a hint, and I've hinted this several times, he was taking a very popular folkloric tale and turning it upside down. He was actually subverting the idea of an afterlife of torment in flames versus an afterlife of happiness in which people, of course, look at all the suffering. How happy can you be? Let me ask you. What if your mother wasn't saved? How happy can you be staring across an, unfa- an unfathomable gulf at the untold sufferings of your mother who's screaming in agony in flames for the rest of eternity and no relief? How happy can you be seated at the table with Abraham? If you think that's reality, then you must think God makes Hitler look like a Boy Scout. I'm using some very rough language here, so I'm very 
I'm never going to say, I, I hate, I hate it. I hate when people say, my bad. I'd rather just say, I'm bad. So forgive me. My bad is a millennial or some sissified way of saying, I'm wrong. Somebody bumped into me yesterday and actually said that. It was a young guy who says, my bad. And I was going to say, what the hell does that mean? You just, so what? You came out of there. We bumped into each other. Big deal. You didn't do anything bad and I didn't do anything bad. What are you talking about? I didn't say that though. I just went, okay. So. The fact that Paul influenced Luke And the fact that Luke was showing the same thing is evident in the very fact that the name Lazarus, and I think Julie Forwerda, who Phil mentioned last week in her book, Raising Hell, which is excellent. And I do recommend her treatment of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. She mentions that Lazarus was equivalent to the word Eliezer, which is a very common Hebrew name. And it was actually a Gentile name. And it happened to be the Gentile servant of Abraham's name. In Genesis 15, 2, and Abraham said to God, I want him to have my inheritance. He was a Gentile servant. It was a hint that the Gentiles were going to receive the inheritance promised by God to Abraham. So Lazarus being there first and the apostate Israel being represented by not being there yet is a picture of what Paul said in Romans eleven twenty five to 27. The mystery is that All Israel will be saved only after all the nations come in. We've taught that in Romans. So I'm breezing here. This is the, that's the first point. I've made the first point. Got it? Okay, let's go to the second point. Second, it is important to notice the use of the key phrase in Luke, the law and the prophets. Or it's variants. Sometimes it's used Moses and the prophets. Moses being the law, the Torah, and the prophets. Or sometimes it's simply the prophets. But in every case, it's a summation of the old, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Which I deem to be and agree with canonicity that it is 39 books of the Old Testament from Genesis through Malachi. So it's important to notice this key phrase in Luke. In fact, this phrase, the law and the prophets, is used seven key times in Luke, but three times in connection with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and that's the very fuse, that's the very C4, the explosive, that blows up the whole notion that Jesus is speaking about an immortal hell, an eternal hell. That's the very phrase that is the explosive that explodes the notion of an eternal hell. And so, it's important to note this phrase. Again, in the beginning of Luke, Zechariah speaks of a salvation that was spoken of by the mouth of the holy prophets. Luke 1.67. Near the close of Luke's gospel, Jesus himself speaks of, quote, all that the prophets have Spoken, especially with regard to the sufferings of Messiah and his entry into glory, something that becomes very significant for Romans 8, 17. That's Luke 24, 25, and 26. And in verse 27 of Luke 24, Luke tells us that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interpreted for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Seven places are particularly notable. Notice, seven places are particularly notable, the Law and the Prophets. We've gone from the Lucan horizon to the Law and the Prophets. Notice what it says in 16.16. We're dealing with a parable that takes a pericope, which is a kind of a paragraph or episode in Luke 16, beginning at verse 19 through 31. But in 16.16, preceding or moving up to that parable, Jesus says this, the law and the prophets were until John. 
Since then, the good news of the kingdom has been proclaimed and everyone is strongly urged to enter it. Or another variant translation, even in the HCSB, or everyone is forcing his way into it. Luke 16, 29. This is right in the heart of the parable. But Abraham said, they, meaning your brothers, that you want to leave this place of torment to go warn, they, he says, have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Who? Moses and the prophets. Luke 16, 31, also in the parable. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Moses and the prophets again. Then later on, Luke 18, 31. Then he took the 12 aside and told them, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished the son of man must suffer to enter his glory the son of man handed over for our sins screams out why have you forsaken me not because God had forsaken him but because he had just become the sin of our unbelief all that is written about me His resurrection, and with his resurrection, the justification of all mankind. As Luke 53 says, or as Isaiah 53 says, through his suffering, the many, meaning all, will be justified. Verified, Romans 4.25, Romans 5.9, Romans 5.18, etc., etc., et al. Again, It is equally important to study this phrase, the law and the prophets. Reason? Let's look again. Luke 24, 25. He said to them, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures Luke 24:44 then he told them these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled it is especially important then for this study that I'm doing with you tonight that this phrase the law and the prophets appears three times in direct connection with this parable of the rich man and Lazarus once as a kind of lead into it Luke 16:16 16, 16, and twice in the very heart of the parable in connection with Abraham's surprising refusal to allow Lazarus to go and warn his brothers Normally, Abraham would tell his Gentile servant to do something. Not anymore. Luke 16, 29 and 31. By his use of the law and the prophets, Jesus is drawing attention. Listen carefully to this. By his use of that phrase, the law and the prophets, Jesus is drawing the attention of us here tonight as readers to the summary mandate the mandate that summarizes, or as Jesus put it in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, upon this commandment, or these two which are alike, he put them together, he did it in the authority of being the word of God himself. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly what this rich man in this parable was not doing toward Lazarus Jesus draws their attention to the summary mandate he said on this peg hangs all the law and the prophets all the law and the prophets Paul picks up this strand and we're going to get to it in Romans 13 8 through 10 so again he draws 
the attention of the reader to the summary mandate to love one's neighbor in this life, the peg on which all the law and the prophets hang. Matthew 22, 37 to 40, compared with Romans 13, 8 to 10. He is not drawing the attention to the law and the prophets as if they say anything about the fate of the dead or the so-called places of the dead, but the summary mandate to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law and the prophets are saying. This parable forecasts a reversal of fortune in which the rich in their high places will be brought low and the poor in their low places will be elevated. It's more than interesting, again, that Lazarus is given a name here and the rich man isn't given a name at all. Usually, VIPs are the ones who have the names and the rest are nameless. The rest of us are nameless. Here, the situation is reversed. This is a realization of John the Baptizer's earlier prophecy that the mountains will be brought low and the valleys raised to form a path for the entrance of the all-saving Lord. The law and the prophets then testify of Jesus Christ. That's where the attention is being drawn, not to a supposed fate of dead people and a binary view of humanity. He is drawing the attention to the law and the prophets because they testify of Jesus Christ who descended into the lower parts of the earth and ascended to the highest heavens in order to fill up all things with himself. To say that this rich man is going to be in flames for eternity is to deny the gospel by which Jesus Christ fills up everything with himself. There is no Hades now that it's not filled up with the presence of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're a believer or unbeliever. When you die and pass out of this life, you're in a place that Jesus Christ is there in control. Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. Confer, if you wish, with Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14, compared to Romans 10, 6 through 8, Psalm 68, 18, Psalm 110, 1, Isaiah 52, 13, and 53, 7 through 12. Almost the whole point of the epistle of Paul to the Romans, almost the whole point of it, is that the proclamation of Jesus Christ is according to the revelation or the apocalypse of the mystery of God which for ages past was kept silent, but is now manifested by the eternal God's command and is seen in the writings of the prophets, Romans 16, 25, and 26, which includes the Psalms, as we're seeing on Sunday mornings with the royal motif, and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible called Moses, the Proverbs, and the historical books like the Samuels and the Chronicles, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, etc., This apocalypse is none other than the revelation of God's pre-temporal intent to savingly recapitulate all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ so that Christ comprises all of created reality in all of its times. So why do you think you can get off by saying that Luke 16, he's backing some idea that some people are going to spend eternity with their immortal soul in a place of flames. Who taught you that? Jesus didn't. Again, he put this explosive, the law and the prophets, right there. Three times. Once in the lead-in, twice in the heart of the parable. Once in the heart, once at the end. To blow up that whole notion that this is speaking of the fate of the dead and of a binary view of humanity. So, we're talking about Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, Ephesians 1, 17 to 23, Ephesians 4, 8 to 10. God, having had mercy on all, in Romans eleven thirty two, he does not leave a particularly bad soul or countless bad souls. And the whole idea of the soul is also misunderstood, but that's another kettle of fish. He does not leave them in a place of endless fiery torment. The proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, which is now made known 
And now to be seen popping as a pop-up book. The prophets have now become pop-up books. The truth pops up through the Holy Spirit. That what they were speaking of, prophets, a pars pro toto term for all the Old Testament scriptures, all that they've been speaking of renders this supposed depiction of an afterlife scenario with its mythical folkloric depiction of a bifurcated humanity and its depiction of a Hades in which bad souls like the avaricious rich man, it reduces that whole image to nothing at all. This isn't too far off from a rabbi, a priest, and a minister went into a bar. This story's been told since ancient Egypt. The story was told in seven different ways in Jewish sources, including a targum in which the guy who dies, the rich man who dies, has a name. The poor man who dies is a Torah scholar. The rich man, well, he gets this big grandiose burial, and the poor man isn't mourned at all. And there's this, it's a parable. It's a metaphorical folkloric tale to illustrate a point, not to illustrate that this is what happens to people when they die. Now, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which is God's intent to sum up everything in Christ, gives the lie to the interpretation that some souls are left to bake in the lake, as someone said before. (laughs) The point of the parable is the prophet's are the testimony of Jesus Christ, the all-saving Savior, whose ethical message is love for God and love for one's neighbor, of which Jesus Christ is the supreme exemplar. The argument that there is a hell for bad souls is reduced to an absurdity in the context of Luke. In the context of the New Testament, in the context of the scriptures in toto, the totality of the word of God. This coupled with the rationale that nothing is impossible for God, whose definitive act is faithful and omnipotent love, renders the idea of an eternal hell a grotesque distortion of the truth and a deeply immoral misrepresentation of God's gospel, which is all about God's son. It's an immoral thing. The doctrine of hell is an immoral doctrine. And they like to talk about people's immorality. That doctrine is far more immoral than any act of adultery, any act of fornication, any act of anything you want to call immorality. It's an immoral doctrine, and it gives birth to the immorality of slander, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, and damnable arrogance. I'm calm. To illustrate the point still further, we'll get down to this. I hope I can do this in two nights. It doesn't look too good, though. To illustrate the point still further to his immediate audience, Jesus' whole reason for saying this parable in which almost every case involves someone is allowed to go out of that place to warn people. He has the surprising turn that you're not allowed to go out there. He's turning the story on its head. He's He's exploding a myth of hell. Hell is a myth told by false Christian doctrine. False doctrine. A church that believes in hell is a cult, not a church that teaches that Christ saves all. That's not a cult. That's a Christian church. Okay. I'm very calm. Jesus was saying by this parable to have nothing to do with the kind of covetousness and avarice illustrated by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees who were opulently wealthy and had no care whatsoever and dismissed entirely 
the abjectly poor. Jesus came into a time in history in which there was opulent wealth and abject poverty and no one helping from the top to the bottom. He's not illustrating the afterlife. He's illustrating the care that comes from loving your neighbor in this life. So, the Pharisees believed in a doctrine of hell. Jesus didn't. He was turning this doctrine upside down. He planted enough explosive in that thing to blow it sky high, but then Christians took it back up again like Pharisees and missed the whole point. I'm not speaking against the whole. I did that. I did it. I got a book today called The Joy of Being Wrong. I've been wrong. I'm, I'm glad. I, I, it was a joyful thing to be wrong. I'm not saying I'm all right now either. I'm saying Jesus is just all right with me. <laughs> now. <laughs> so. The commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, along with the commandment to love God with one's whole being and belongings in Deuteronomy 6.5, is the peg upon which all the law and the prophets hang. Jesus Christ did not abolish those commands. He fulfilled them, Matthew 5.17. That's why the law and the prophets testify of him. He died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. And this includes the rich man whom the Messiah was with in his death. You know what Isaiah 53, 9 says? He was with the rich man in his death. He was what? He was with the rich man in his death. He was dying for the rich man in his death. He was with the rich man in his death. He does not portray in the prophets a rich man alone apart from God he pictures in the gospel Jesus with the rich man the despicable avaricious covetous lecherous slob called the rich man is the one with whom Jesus was with in his death he died for that guy so that's Isaiah 53, 9. God justifies the ungodly, it seems, in Romans 4, 5 and in Romans eight thirty four. Even the avaricious, insensitive, unloving, self-indulgent, self-seeking, rich man who isn't even given a name in the story. Because like the Beatles song, nowhere man is everybody. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Well, I'm not like the rich man. Okay. The situation in Israel, I'm going to wind down. I see the clock. And it don't mean nothing to me anymore. The situation in Israel during the days of Christ's flesh, before the time of social security, state welfare, and other governmental programs, in that time there was gross economic inequity and egregious neglect of the genuinely poor. The very trends which led to the demise of Sodom by fire from another world. Please notice that. Not everlasting fire, not eternal fire. Fire from another world destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, which led to that catastrophe, historically speaking, was not homosexuality. It was having an abundance of bread and prosperity and ignoring the poor. Ezekiel 16, 48 and 49. But guess what Ezekiel 16, 55 says? First of all, it says in 16, 49, Jude 1, 7 relates to the destruction, fire from another world. And as God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in 16, now this was the iniquity of your sister, Israel, your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. So that's the end of them, you say. No, wait a minute. 
you forget to read all the way to Ezekiel 16.55, which says Sodom will be restored and her fortunes restored in the eschaton, as will Jerusalem, her sister. Restoration, Ezekiel 16.55. We, too, have the law and the prophets and the no longer silent mystery. We have Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim according to the apocalyptic revelation of this mystery, a proclamation to which all the nations, including Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, I love Isaiah 19.25, read that sometime and meditate on it. All nations, including Israel, Egypt, who invented this story, the prophets didn't believe in a hell. You know who did? Plato. And the Greek philosophers. You know who else did? Egypt. And that's where this folkloric tale came. And Jesus told it like he was telling a minister, a rabbi, and a priest. They went to the pearly gates. Met Peter. That doesn't seem to be in the Bible. But he tells a story. And he blows it up. Again, he plants explosive called the Law and the Prophets right At the beginning, in the heart, and in the end, he planted explosives and he blew that whole thing up. We didn't get the point, though. I mean, Christians. So, in closing, we too have the Law and the Prophets, and in them we have a no longer silent mystery. We have Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim according to the apocalyptic revelation of this mystery. It's a proclamation to which all the nations, including Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, Isaiah 19.25, will become obedient. For God will evoke fidelity to his Son as Lord in all, Isaiah 45.23, compared with Romans 14.11, Philippians 2.9-11, and Acts 17.31. This obedience or allegiance is to be brought about not through force or coercion, but by the omnipotent persuasion of unrestricted and unconditional divine love. In fact, the obedience of Christ to the Father to the extent by, of death by crucifixion has already justified all of humankind. Romans 5.9, 5.18, 5.19. So to paraphrase Jesus regarding the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, I'm paraphrasing the sense because that's what preachers and teachers are supposed to do. Read the scriptures, give the sense. Here's the sense. Jesus is essentially saying here, I am not giving you a glimpse into the afterlife here in this parable, but what is written in the law and prophets concerning me and tomorrow night we'll continue this into the third fourth fifth sixth seventh and eighth points and we'll be done with all I have on Lazarus and the rich man so far so father we thank you for this opportunity we thank you that this was the time a time that's been long coming that we would deal with this topic with this subject with this really hotbed subject and we pray father no pun intended we pray father that you will enlighten our eyes through this teaching of this wonderful portion of scripture in which what is highlighted is not a man burning in hell and another in relief in Abraham's table but what is highlighted is Jesus Christ and him crucified and the message of the law and the prophets that all things are to be restored by him. That's what we're learning in Romans. It's not contradicted in Luke or Acts. It's not contradicted, but affirmed in John, in Revelation, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in all the law and all the prophets. Thank you, Father. Open our eyes further that we may see and understand the scriptures as the testimony of Jesus. And open the eyes of our friends, and I call them friends, who oppose this message on the basis of this parable. 
and prevent us from the pride of arrogance. For if we take on pride and arrogance in this knowledge, someday very soon we'll be blind to this understanding. So we pray that you'll avoid this and cause us to evade this and allow us to keep humble with this knowledge. We ask this in Christ's name.